Words matter. They can change the course of your day. Just listen. You are brave. You are stronger than you think. You have value, worth, and dignity. Don't you feel better already? Welcome to Speak Healing Words, the podcast. Join author and board-certified life coach Janelle Reardon as she opens a very important conversation about the power of our words. Hello and welcome to the Speak Healing Words podcast. I am Janelle and I am your host for these next few minutes. I'm so glad you've made your way here. You know, somehow in all of podcast land, you have come to this place. And I pray that it is a healing place, a place where you can find a refuge from the world of words that seem to whir around us every day. I pray that this is just not more noise, but true, significant, meaningful conversation. We have been working through the nine practices of my latest book, Overcoming Hurtful Words, Rewrite Your Own Story. This week, we come to practice six, wait for the peace that passes all understanding. Ooh, the intention of practice six, I will overcome hurtful words by waiting for the peace that passes all understanding. I love Sue Monk Kid and one of my favorite, favorite books on waiting and patience and surrender is her book, When the Heart Waits. I cannot encourage you enough to order this book and read it in concert with Practice Six, Wait for the Peace That Passes All Understanding. I am only scratching the surface of this very deep, deep conversation on peace and patience. Sue Monk Kidd writes these words, while a crisis is a summons into transformation, we must also recognize that it's an advent into an entanglement of feelings. Let me, let me repeat this because, ooh, she just says it so well. While a crisis, we could add a heartbreak, is a summons into transformation, we must also recognize that it's an advent into an entanglement of feelings. Part of living a crisis creatively, and I like to add, in a heart-lifting, full-on, healthy way, part of that is identifying and understanding the feelings, the emotions that come with it. Otherwise, we don't have a crisis. It has us. Oh my goodness, I could spend the next 30 minutes just talking about that one quote. And if you know me or if you've been in my teachings or if you're a client, you know that I probably say over and over again, don't know how many times, within um, an intensive session, there are so many layers inside of our crises or inside of our heartbreak or inside of our problem, the one that you've come to sit and um heartlift with me. There just are so many layers 
Sumant Kid says an entanglement. And that's exactly what it is. It's like a spider web. Like you've walked into a big spider web. And if you've ever done that, it's so frustrating because it just it just clings to you and you have to take a few moments to, oh, I just, the thought of it makes me feel creepy, but it just sticks on you. And that's what happens. And so I love her words that we don't want the crisis to have us, to own us. We want to own the crisis. And that's another way of just saying we want to be mature We want to be emotionally regulated. We want to have a mastery of our emotional health. And that's what we're all about here. If you're new and you're tuning in, we are all about the threefold cord of emotional health and spiritual authenticity. A healthy sense of self, a healthy grasp of our behavior patterns and healthy healthy, healthy communication skills. I am 1 million percent convinced that when we embrace the threefold cord of emotional health and spiritual authenticity, when we, when we embrace that, when it owns us, then we can move through our lives and in our spheres of influence in a stable way that really enables us to live an efficient, effective, meaningful life. It does not mean that we'll be perfect. There is no such thing. But it means that we'll practice and we will make progress each and every day of our lives towards maturity. You don't hear emotional health taught a lot. It is on the upswing, though, and I'm so thrilled about this. The national, international conversation through the voices of many leading, uh, many leading authors and, and teachers is coming in full swing. So we are bringing it into a conversation, and that's been my heartbeat for the last six years. And so that's why I love being here with you today. Waiting rooms, waiting rooms, they're not fashioned for the faint-hearted or the impatient. You've been there. I know you have. You might be sitting in a waiting room right now. You don't want to be sitting there, but you're sitting there. Boy, have I been there. Usually, it's a crowded room, unless it's in the wee hours of the night. I've been there as well. Waiting for a doctor's appointment or a loved one to come through surgery. Fingers tap, don't they, on the armrest of chairs. Restless legs bounce up and down with nervous energy. I'm just describing my own behavior here. Surrounded by strangers, stacks of magazines, and loud blaring TVs usually. Cups of instant coffee. Boy, your heart rate just increases, doesn't it? It's heightened. The heightened emotions and the anxious questions that are revolving in your cognition, your thought process, they just seem to tick, tick, tick in sync with the clock on the wall. How much longer do I have to wait? When is the doctor going to come in and tell me what the heck is going on? It's been hours. If something doesn't happen soon, I'm literally going to crawl out of my skin. I have so been in that 
place so, so many times in the last uh, eight years through my uh, uh, severe struggle with my daughter, um, having to have some serious surgery, my mother, ooh, just on and on and on, and myself. And so sitting in a waiting room tends to make us want to crawl out of our skin. And I've come to understand that that idiom that I found myself saying over and over, I'm coming out of my skin, I'm coming out of my skin, is a true psychological condition. It's disembodiment. And so not to get heavy and weigh into that, but uh, I will be writing more about it on the blog and talking about it more on my practice uh, Facebook page, Heartlift Consulting and Coaching. And uh, getting into the uh, psychological, psychiatric uh, counseling thoughts about embodiment. Because it becomes so difficult, the situation, that we actually have to kind of come out of our body, disembody, and engage in some God-given coping skills and defense mechanisms to enable us to get through the traumatic little t or big t trauma in order to cope, in order to get through it. And then once we're through it, possibly in the next season, you know, we we move, our bodies also move in seasons, just like the uh, nature does. And so an, an old Eastern beliefs tradition in Eastern medicine is that what you suffer in this season in your body or in your mental health, or in your life, will actually show up in your mental state and in your body the next season. So I will have, you know, clients sit down with me, or women at, and that I'm helping in conferences or after retreats and things, and they'll go, you know, I did so good in the hospital. Like, I moved through it. I didn't fall apart. But what's going on in my body? I am falling apart now. And I'm like, that's because you can. Your body got you through, and your mind, they work together, headspace, heart connection, and then the body. So they worked together, your coping mechanisms, they did their job, your defense mechanisms did their job, let's give them some applause. We could also call it the grace and mercy of God, but now that you are equalizing and you've got some homeostasis in your body and you're equilibrating, however you want to say that, there's balance. You've got time and energy now. Now is the time to deal with the after effect. Let's walk through it now. Let's go from disembodiment to embodiment. So stay tuned for that. I will be writing more about that because it's something that I have totally seem to be a critical piece of the healing journey. So in the waiting room, life slows down. And in a strange way, we finally slow down. As time passes, if we cooperate and lean into practicing patience, something magical can happen. Previously important schedules are interrupted by the eternal. Things that earlier in the day seemed absolutely critical lose their sense of immediacy. Oftentimes, friends and family either call or appear with emotional support and much-needed reinforcements. Personal agendas are exchanged for God's agenda. Anxiety lifts ever so lightly, 
and gives way to acceptance, the gateway to God's peace. Acceptance is another word for surrender, for letting go. And I turn back to Sue Monk Kidd in her book, When the Heart Waits, in her chapter on letting go. Because she, along with um, Thomas Merton, she quotes Thomas Merton, the, the wise man of God that he was. And he, he says this, Thomas Merton suggested that there are two levels to the process of abandoning self-will and surrendering fully to God. First, there is the active work we do with the conscious surface attachments in our life. Those patterns we recognize and we can campaign against them. He writes that to let go of these, you pray and suffer and hang on and give things up and hope and sweat. This seemed to correspond to what we were talking about in our practice of praying through and staying with. We can be very conscious of things that we need to let go. Right? Sitting in the waiting room with a full day schedule and I'm there because something sudden has happened to someone I love, I consciously know that I've got to let go of my tidy schedule, that I my plans for the day must go. But he, he talks about a different level of that as well, the second level, which deals with deeper, more unconscious patterns. He calls these secret attachments. To uproot, the, uproot these, he cautions that we need to leave the initiative in the hands of God working in our souls, either directly in the night of aridity, which is just dryness and suffering, or through events and other men. Okay, he, this is what he means. <laughs> Took me a few reads. He suggests that on this level, we shift to a different way of letting go. Here the approach becomes a little more mysterious. We let go of our letting go. Okay, go ahead, scratch your head because I had to read this so many times. He says, we stop struggling. We stop saying, I will let go. I will, I will, I will. Instead, having done all we can, we allow God to work directly on the more secret and deeply ingrained attachments we have to self. We allow God to release us through the experiences, encounters, and events that come to us. This just speaks to why we all so often fail at letting go. We stay at the first level. We stay in the conscious level. I can let go of these things, but like we said, there are layers, and the reason we don't want to let go of something in our conscious level that we can see or that we're, we're very aware of, there are layers underneath it as to why we can't let go, those secret attachments. 
Merton writes, this is where so many holy people break down. As soon as they reach the point where they can no longer see the way and guide themselves by their own light, they refuse to go any further. In modern terms, we might say we stay stuck. Or we refuse to do the harder work of getting to the underlayers, the things we can't see. It is in this darkness that we find true liberty. It is in this abandonment that we are made strong. This is the night that empties us of our clinging so hard, of our tight fist, of our clenched jaw. We're called to let go even of our letting go. We need to quit forcing things hmm, and enter the darkness of true liberty where we give up our self-efforts and allow God to intercede and draw us to our moment of readiness. Now, in Practice 6 and Overcoming Hurtful Words, coming back to uh, my book, we enter into a beautiful conversation about what happens as a result of sitting in the waiting room. This beautiful, surprising development of intimacy with God. And as I studied for practice six, I found these words that to me defined real intimacy. As a friend of mine says, you know, intimacy is into me, you see. It's like, wow, so true. And I think we have a misunderstood or misconstrued idea of what real, true intimacy is. So much of our conversations on intimacy are usually equated with sexual intimacy. But there, even in sexual intimacy, you must have an emotional intimacy to experience true sexual intimacy. Another conversation for another day. But listen to these words that I feel will help you and me once again understand what real intimacy is. It it makes us feel like we have been found, as if someone finally took the time to peer into the depths of our soul and really see us there. Until then, until we experience true intimacy, we feel passed over and ignored, like someone is looking right through us. Real intimacy can only begin, oh, hear this, this is so profound. Real intimacy can only begin once you know yourself. True intimacy begins with being connected to your own heart. Because God made us, he intimately knows us better than anyone else. He can make us feel known in a way that no one on earth is able. Being connected to our heart takes a great deal of time, self-compassion, self-awareness, and energy. It also means we must spend time with the one, with God, 
the one who breathed his virtue and life into us. Genesis 2, 7 beginning. Wow. We have to spend time with him. He created our heart. Many of us see God as a regal king sitting on a throne, an ornate throne at that. And this is true. He is a king. He's the king of kings and the Lord of all lords. But he is also a man who came to earth and walked through every trial and temptation known to man. He took on the very nature of a servant. He actually experienced firsthand absolutely every emotion and temptation known to us. Hebrews 2.18 tells us, since he himself has now been through suffering and temptation, he knows what it is like when we suffer and are tempted, and he is wonderfully able to help us. And he does. He does not expect you, my friend, to walk through this journey alone. Even though at times it, it will feel as though you are alone, he helps you and me by his spirit, whom he promised to each of us. I am certain of this. He will never leave you or forsake you, and he never abandons his child. He just can't. So I encourage you with all of my heart to take a moment, or well, it's going to be a few moments actually, to hop on over to JanelleRairdon.com slash resources, The Heartlift Method, and go to phase two, the heart sift, heart shift phase. Open that up and you are going to find a beautiful meditative exercise called, you know, sitting in the waiting room, the waiting room of God. And within that, you will be introduced to three beautiful letters that God writes to you. And there are three more meditative exercises, letter one, letter two, and letter three, that I, I oh, please take some, mm, some quiet, quiet time, put those headphones on, and listen to the words of these meditative exercises and let them soak into every one of your cells. Receive those words as if God were speaking them directly to you, because that is how I received them when I initially heard them. And I want to offer them to you as an exercise to truly understand and grasp the power that exists inside God's waiting room. Where you, where me, where I learn the power of the practice of patience. James 1 verses 4 through 8 are so powerful. And I've had the first part of those scriptures etched on a chalkboard over my desk. And it says, let patience have her perfect way. I love that James gives this personified female character to patience. 
let her have her perfect way. Perfect meaning that you will be completely whole and entire and mature after you allow patience to come and do her work in your heart. You let patience get to the underlying entanglements, the layer where secret attachments are. You give patience time and space to do the necessary healing within your heart. As you move towards the end and after you've listened to the meditative exercises in practice six, around page 124, 125, you're going to see the threefold cord of waiting. I've spoken of the beautiful theme of a threefold cord that uh, just unfolded itself as I wrote Overcoming Hurtful Words. That tends to be what happens when I'm writing a book or writing a study or a small a guide. These themes begin to emerge. Uh, bridges, very big theme in Overcoming Hurtful Words. And then the threefold cord, which cannot be easily broken, which is written about in Ecclesiastes. And the threefold cord of waiting is all about truth, light, and peace. I, I love what wait means in the Hebrew. It, it literally translates to twist or bind like a rope. Hello, a cord, a rope. <laughs> Creating something stronger and more robust. Did you hear that? That's a holy wow. That's incredible. So to wait, quava, I believe is the way you pronounce that, means that as we are waiting, we're being twisted and bound like a threefold cord or rope creating something so strong and so robust that we will only become more stable and secure and apt to move through life from that place you and I are so hungering to move from, that place of restilience, that place of security. There's no other way to say it. So, when we are overcoming hurtful words, we are like that threefold cord, right? You, me, and God. We understand our God-breathed identity. We understand the threefold cord of connection to God, to self, and to others. And rest then empowers that threefold cord of me, myself, and I to move through my life from a place of collected strength. Twisting and binding do not paint a pretty picture. I get it. But they do imply momentary, depending on exactly how much time God sees fit to twist or bind us. So it's momentarily painful and discomforting. But ultimately, this action results in a strong, robust rope and in our lives results in strong, robust, resilient character. Oh, I just have to stop there. I think that is just so powerful. It gets me every time. And I just uh, want to encourage you, and I'm going to leave you with the beautiful prayer 
That is on page 129 in practice six. Father God, help us be wise, not know-it-alls. May we be full of light, not empty and void. May we be accepting of one another, not rejecting. May we be authentic and not artificial. May we be kinder than we want to be, not catty and curt. May we be peacemakers, not peacekeepers. May we be joyful, not jealous. May we be truth seekers, not tell-alls. May we be humble, not hateful or spiteful. May we be mature, not immature. And ultimately, Father, may we shine like the stars in the universe, lighting up the skies of our spheres of influence. Amen. I found it really hard to leave God's waiting room when I was done with practice six. I didn't want to move into practice seven. I found God's waiting room. I finally settled into it and found it to be uh, just a beautiful space. And, And so I keep that practice in my life to this day where I will set aside 15, 20, 30, sometimes an hour, minute, a day, and just sit in God's presence and listen for his whispers and get comfortable with doing nothing and just being and giving my nervous system a break from doing, doing more and more. And so I pray that as you listen to the meditative exercise, God's waiting room and and even accept the challenge and practice, practice six's heart care to design your own waiting room, that you too will find a peace that passes all understanding as you let patience do her perfect work. You're going to love, you're going to love the effects of that work. It's a deep inner contentment and it's priceless. Have a good day. I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening today. It was great having you here. For even more great content and conversation, please join the Speak Healing Words community at JanelleReardon.com.